This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is Cerise Howard. Hi, Cerise. Hi, Flick. <laughs> it's lovely to be here again. Yes, well, it's lovely to have you here. We've also got animator and all-round legend Kelsey Pettifer on the line. Hey. Hey, hey Kelsey. Lovely to have you back. Kelsey, you may remember her dulcet tones from our Pixar special from a, a few months ago. A while mm-hmm. ago, actually. It's probably the start <laughs> of the year. It's run past so quickly. We're reviewing a film that has been described as a spellbounding waltz in a storm and the most original film of 2021. It's Leos Carax's Annette, starring Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver and a rather scary puppet baby. And sticking with puppets, we'll learn about the stop motion and puppetry work of surrealist filmmaker Jan Svankmeyer in the documentary Athenor, The Achemical Furnace, uh, the A-chemical furnace uh, which is currently playing at, uh, as part of the 9th Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia. And the festival started uh, last week and it's going to run through to October 16. So you can check out the full program at Kasva, C-A-S-S-F-A. And another film festival that is days away from starting is the Environmental Film Festival of Australia, or EFA, as it's often affectionately known. So EFA is a volunteer-run festival featuring groundbreaking cinema that explores the relationship between humans and their environments. The festival hopes to challenge the way people think about the natural world and it seeks to inspire all of us to discuss, explore and act on important environmental issues. And joining us tonight is the screen manager of the Environmental Film Festival, Natalie May. Welcome to Primal Screen, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, before we, uh, before we get stuck into the details of this year's Environmental Film Festival, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the festival actually got started? Yeah, so uh, EFA began in 2010 in NAM, Melbourne, as the Environmental Film Festival of Melbourne originally, and we have held an annual festival every October. Uh, we're 100% volunteer run, as you mentioned, and so from the beginning, we've always been uh, really grassroots, and one of our main aims has been about converting interest into action. So alongside our film program, we also host talks, workshops, and partner events to really encourage our audience to take that inspiration they have from the film and uh, turn it into some good. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of curious. The, the festival, I've gone through the program, it's got um, talks, you've got Q&As, you've got screenings, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, what was it like programming a film festival in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, it's definitely been a really interesting experience. It's <laughs> evolved a lot over the time. Um, 
So, I mean, just from a programming perspective, uh, the majority of the films that we're showing were actually viewed by our programming team in the first half of 2020 uh, with the view that they were going to take part as, uh, were, they were going to be shown as part of the festival that year. And then when the 2020 festival got cancelled and replaced with a couple of smaller online events, we pushed all of these forward um, to 2021, we held on to them in the hope that we'd be able to give them an in-cinema screening. Uh, and unfortunately, that hasn't been able to happen for us again, but we've forged ahead with a full-scale online event. Uh, and it's just been a lot of, you know, really back and forth, uh, you know, between our filmmakers and our programming coordinator, uh, you know, having to constantly change the festivals online and now it's offline and, you know, all of these different detail changes in dates and the rest of it. Um, and so, you know, I guess we're really lucky in that our filmmakers have taken it all in their stride and they've been willing to adapt to those changes as we've thrown, thrown it at them. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's some some benefits from being to being an online film festival? I mean, like in terms of reach and distribution? Yeah, absolutely. So we are really excited that this year's program uh, is available throughout the whole of Australia and New Zealand. So that definitely gives us reach to a lot more audiences than we've ever had in the past. Uh, one of the other things that I think is a real benefit of being online um, is just also that increased accessibility. So for a lot of people who might not be able to get to an in-cinema screening, even if they are living in Melbourne, uh, this might give them a way that they can engage with us. Mm, absolutely. And look, the films, um, the films that you're featuring in the Environmental Film Festival kind of by necessity are going to cover some pretty intense topics and the term eco-anxiety is often used to describe the the impact that the devastation of um, our environment has on our mental health. I'm just curious, you've worked on a lot of festivals like MIF and Girls on Film. How do you reach that kind of perfect balance between engaging audiences and, and kind of encouraging them to take action without depressing them? I mean, I guess it's just about trying to find that balance. So this is a lot of the discussions that we have in the programming process um, where we really want to select films that aren't just all doom and gloom, but they really do give um, audiences that element of hope that there can be something better uh, if we're willing to work for it. So, yeah, it's just about making sure we find that right balance of films uh, and across the program as a whole. So we've got a lot of really kind of charming and uplifting ones, as well as some ones that really, you know, don't hold back from what the changes to the environment are doing. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think it's really hard sometimes with, I mean, sorry, so you've had heaps of experience with programming <laughs> and, and festival kind of design. So yeah, I, I think that must come up a lot, right? Oh, for sure. That, that balancing act, I mm. mean, it's, um, there's no magic formula. Um, it's all in the interpretation and in the, in the contextual framework you put films in as well. I mean, these festivals never operate with the program in a vacuum in my experience. So mm. um, have, have you got various strands running through this year's program? Are there ways that films are – you've had some mention of workshop. There are some discussions. That, are there means of positioning films in such a way as to give audiences that little, that little scary of hope? <laughs> Um, not so much program strands that we've got, uh, but we have just tried to get a really good diversity of titles across there. Um, and we have been able to at least program some of our extra events and workshops for online. So we are still giving people, uh, you know, things that they can do within our lockdown environment um, to 
I guess, work for the environment. Yeah, I think it's wonderful having that um, kind of interactivity because especially when you're dealing with environmental cinema, I feel like when I watch those kind of films, um, either it's documentary feature films, you've got animation as well in the program, but films in which that tap into, like I said, that eco-anxiety, but also like that give these stories of hope, I want to talk about it with people. And I think the festival provides a great opportunity to do that. And it's great that you've got all these other things that people can do, especially because it's online. So you have that, that kind of sense of connection there as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, being able to host a workshop online is definitely a big plus because one of the things that you do lose when you go uh, into an online festival is, um, you know, that engagement with the other people around you, being able to turn to the person next to you when the screening's over. So at least being able to provide some um, platforms online where people can connect with other audiences. I think we just had a... And they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, that's okay. I think we just had a little bit of a audio a bl- texture. Yeah. <laughs> the delights of live radio. I wonder, has any research been done into the carbon footprints of a digital festival as opposed to an on-site in cinema festival? Uh, I definitely think it's lower, but I can't give you any exact yeah, I'd have thought so too. I just on that. It would be great if someone had done some research onto that because um, I think – we believe it is, but I guess we don't know that for certain. Yeah, I'd expect so too. I'm just yeah. a bit of interesting PhD topic out yeah. there for some eager beaver listener tuning Absol- in right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the commute from um, to my projector in the lounge room is uh, waste snow, fossil, fu- <laughs> fossil fuels, petrol fumes. There's nothing going on there. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I think it's a great program. I'm, I'm really pleased that um, you've been able to, like you say, persevere and be able to still present these films online through the festival. We've seen so many festivals this year that have um, had to, to pivot to the online world, to the online space. I don't think, um, you know, I think that we've gotten very literate with, with engaging with film in this way and I think that you'll hopefully get a lot of... Um, your audiences will get a lot of inspiration and um, prompts to think a bit more about the environment. Um, For those who have just tuned in, we're speaking with Natalie May, who's the screen manager of the Environmental Film Festival. Um, Before we let you go, Natalie, do you have some recommendations of what we should check out at the festival? I definitely, definitely do. So if I was only going to recommend one film, uh, it would be The Weather Diaries, which is the film that we've selected as our opening night title. So that's an Australian documentary, um, really beautiful and intelligent, um, was shot uh, up in Sydney over the course of several years, and it shows the impacts of climate change that we can see right now in our own environment. And it also follows around um, the director's daughter, Imogen, who some might know as the musician Lupa J. Um, while she's in her last few years of high school. And so through looking at her, it really asks those questions about intergenerational responsibility. And for those younger generations, you know, what does success in an area like music mean when the very earth that we live on, you know, is is under threat um, and how everything in your life can be viewed through that prism of what's happening to the world? Um We're also very lucky that we've got a couple of events associated with that. So as I said, that's our opening night event. So we do also have a live stream performance by Looper J 
uh, this Thursday. And then we are also hosting a Q&A with the director, Kathy Drayton, and Imogen on Saturday night, which we're very thankful that you are hosting for us, Flick. Yes, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I loved, I love um, having those kind of deep dives after a screening. I think it's a great way for, for audiences to get a deeper understanding of the film, what went into it and, and the people behind it. So I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to that chat. If you want to, it is a free event. It'll be this Saturday and I'll be speaking with um, the director of the festival's opening night, The Weather Diaries, Kathy Drayton, and the subject of her documentary, her daughter Imogen Jones. So yeah, definitely um, tune in for that. Um, we are, if you want to know more about the festival though, and you can check out the whole, the full program on effa.org.au. It's starting this Thursday and, um, there's plenty of stuff going on and yeah, just, just kind of do a deep dive. It took me a little while to go through it all, but it's got a beautiful design to it. So it's very, um, yeah, very accessible. And I think, you know, like we were saying before, I think there's going to be lots of very interesting discussions that happen online and, and maybe in people's lounge rooms after watching some of the films that you've got for that, um, that you've got scheduled. Uh, we've been speaking with Natalie May, who is the screen manager of the Environmental Film Festival. Thanks so much for joining us, Natalie. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. Um, and you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Hello there, you're listening to Primal Screen. My name is Flickford, and I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Kelsey Pettifer. We started the show with Natalie May, who's the screen manager of the Environmental Film Festival. The festival is starting this Thursday, and you can check out the full program on effa.org.au. And yeah, you know what? We we can start. Let's let's give you a little taster of this wacky musical melodrama. Henry, a storm is rolling in. I'm well aware of that, my dear. Let's waltz in the storm. I'm not that drunk, I'm not that drunk. Hey, where's the net? Where did she go? Annette's asleep, she's safe below. Henry, you're not the man I know. Now, if you thought, wow, that sounds a lot like Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard sing arguing in a storm, uh, you'd be right. Um, that was a clip from Annette. Uh, Kelsey, tell us all about Annette. Beautiful. So <laughs> glad to. Uh, so released in August of this year, 2021, Annette is a musical. It's got romantic and psychological threads weaved throughout. Uh, it stars, as Flick mentioned, Marion Cotillard. Uh, she plays Anne and she's a popular and equally talented opera singer. She falls in love with Adam Driver's character, Henry McHenry, a provocative stand-up comic uh, with a dark sense of humour and both are currently at the height of their careers. So they're passionately in love and they announce that they're expecting the birth of their first child and things are going well for the pair. Henry McHenry has everything he could ever want, success, uh, a family, a career, and initially his fans idolise him but they soon turn on him and inevitably he begins to lose control. Uh, so it's directed by uh, Leos uh, Carax, whose previous works include Holy Motors, a film that equally pushes the boundaries, exploring the strange, 
And this was his first speaking English-speaking film, uh, also his first time teaming up with Ron and Russell Mull, otherwise known as the synth heavy band Sparks. Uh, and, yeah, the overall, in terms of watching this film, I found... I don't really like watching musicals at home. That was sort of my first. <laughs> That's, I feel like for our listeners, I feel like, you know, if you're wondering whether you're going to like this, the first question is, do you like pop opera? Because, exactly. uh, you know, that's the core of it. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. I. So you don't uh, like musicals, Kelsey. I don't think I knew this about you. I love <laughs> musicals. <laughs> no, I, I love watching them for real, like in a like theatre that's where I love it but I can't do them on screen like Sweeney Todd and all those I can't (laughs) do no so this was quite challenging but I managed to kind of get past it after a little while um and I was able to look at sort of some of the choices that had been made uh and I just sort of was totally pulled in and I slowly yeah I slowly began to really love it the choices, uh, I didn't know, I didn't mention the puppet aspect um, in the stop because <laughs> I wasn't did you, sure. How did you miss out the puppet aspect? Oh, I was like, is that a secret? Should we keep that? But no, I, honestly, I don't think it's a, do you think it's a spoiler, series? Not really. Um, no, I think I already spoiled it if we, if, yeah. <laughs> if it is. All of the articles I read, it was in there. So I yeah, think it's fine. Okay. But I was just like, I thought at first I was like, why have they done this? It is such a strange (laughs) choice and I don't know if I fully approve of it. But then I realised it's kind of, I felt like it was kind of a layer of him rejecting, I don't know, like naturalism or something that Mm. kind of really added to this sense of uh, unreality and, uh, like, dread. It just made me feel really, like, worried for the couple. They were, like, nursing this puppet. It's like, they realise? I don't know. That's wonderful. I I wonder, that's a lovely term, unreality. I I definitely feel like this film leans into that very heavily or or maybe more into the stage. I I saw it more as a stage Mm. performance. Um, The phrase pop opera for me is kind of more so where it sits, but, you know, you're having a puppet baby definitely adds to that sense of unreality. Um, Cerise, I feel like you and I both had a lot of um, anticipation about this film. There was a lot of chat on emails about how excited we were did it live up to to the hype it did because the the film has famously confounded a lot of people and I have to confess it confounded me because I it's about the film I've been most invested in all year wanting to see because I love Sparks and Mm. I'm a huge fan of some of Leo's characters previous work in particular Holy Motors his immediately previous film which is even then's about nine years ago or so Mm. it's quite a while ago um and uh, the combination of the two could only have been interesting. And then it it absolutely isn't anything that I could have quite expected, even though a lot of the elements I would have expected are there. But the combination is so peculiar, mm. even though from the get-go it, it hit a lot of the marks that I expected it. It's very self-reflective. Immediately the film begins with Leos Carrick's in a studio as the producer. Sparks are performing. Then they all get out and proceed down the street, I, singing along, maybe yeah. start. It's such a strong oh start, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> It was. Oh, were you hating yeah. that, Kelsey? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Some of the songs in this movie is just too, rep- like, too much repetition. 
what like what was going on there there was just constant like that love that song they would constantly sing it was beautiful but it was like could they not just have a few extra lyrics lyrics? (laughs) yeah I was like oh my god so fresh driving me into madness yeah (laughs) and singing it during the sex scene as well is quite fun yeah Which quickly segued into a birth scene. That was quite, quite something. That's how it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's how it happens. Some say. Yeah, I mean, there's I, there are traditions that they're co- that that they're calling upon here, mm. calling back to. Um, I think Jacques de me. I mean, he might have been horrified if he thought this was his legacy because he was all. It wasn't exactly all sunshine and rainbows like the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which that this film put me in mind of a lot. Is a tragedy in a way, but it's still. It's not warped and peculiar and doesn't have a, a weird puppet baby thing uh, and a s- peculiar star is born type freak out acid narrative thing going on in it as well. Um, but it, that that recitation of, of banal, often mm. really banal lyrics, things that people normally speak to each other and would say once, not over and over, I think that, <laughs> that goes back. That feels very Jacques to me, to mm. me. And... Um, and yeah, just yes. Yeah, so seeing sparks on screen, I really, mm. really enjoyed hearing Adam Driver sing. He sings reasonably well. Do you think so? See, I, look, I love Adam Driver. He's a beautiful man. He's also an amazing actor. Like, mm. adore Adam Driver. I don't think I ever need to hear him sing again. I, I didn't. Think mind. Well, be good. You, you don't remember him singing in um, Inside uh, Lewin Davis? Oh, Dav- true. Davis. Davis. Yeah, Davis. Yeah. 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 Okay. Those bass notes. All right, really I stand corrected. Yeah. Okay, that one. That one film he's allowed. He was great. Yeah. Like singing. Live. How about how about him playing an asshole? How about that as a revelation? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe not that much of a stretch. Who knows? We don't really know. I got some um, – there's a certain bit where he's acting very moody on his motorbike and it did um, remind me that I would love to rewatch um some Star Wars. I was just like, yeah, actually. That- yeah. <laughs> did you have yeah. the same, Kelsey? Yeah. Totally. Same I thought it was, thing. It, it was very – yeah, r- remind me of that. But in all honesty, I, the film that stood out for me, not as a um, tonally – not as a tonal comparison, but just in terms of how they were using this sort of sense of staging was um, Dogville, the last one Trier mm. film, um, mm. with Nicole Kidman, where uh, there's no, um, you know, there's no uh, set, is there? It's mm. all kind of like they um, basically pretend there's a door and they open it. So in Dogville, there's the actors move around and um, it takes a while. It's a it's a confronting watchdogville, and it kind of reminds me a bit of what you were saying before, Kelsey, about how you don't really like musicals. So, like already, you've kind of gone into this being like, oh, I don't know. And Dogville has mm. a bit of that where you really have to work with it. But then totally. by the end, I remember feeling completely on board, and it just naturalized it all. Um, with Annette, though, I don't know. Cerise, like I had a, I was really excited about watching this. I'm not sure where I sit because it was. I love musicals, firstly, but I hate opera. I really hate opera. And so (laughs) I remember Stewie Richards, a um, a friend of the show, um, uh, he recommended a film called Fig Trees, which is this, yeah, uh, yeah, like it's a a queer pop opera, not pop opera, it's a queer opera. um, I don't know how else you'd describe it. It's a very odd film. and I'm not saying – I just really hated it. <laughs> I, I just I, – it made me realise I was like, I really don't like opera. And I've been to the opera before and I, I will 
I I just don't enjoy it. I have to admit. Anyhow, uh, I'm obviously uh, a Neanderthal, but I just look. I've, Annette's fascinating. You know, I think it's such a talking point. I I do actually think that um, Driver and Cotillard really invest in the characters. You know, they really commit, and I find them both very watchable, both as a couple and just as there's so much. Um, beautiful design and staging to this film mm. you know characters just got this the visual design through this throughout this film and the use of color I mean it's it's a, maybe an obvious point to make but the use of color is is really beautiful in this film and really poetic well, that's what reminded me of Jacques Demy as mm. well but it also reminded me of characters previous films and the lovers on the bridge and even the color coding of the characters matches mm. uh Denis Levon and Juliette Binoche in that film the green for the guy, the yellow for the girl. Mm. There's all this these threads running through his films. Mm. Um, and also blue for the baby. Blue, yeah. Blue for the puppet baby. <laughs> Lest we forget there is a puppet baby <laughs> who is, is, yeah, you know, on the un, super uncanny side of uncanny. <laughs> I mean, I really stared at it for quite a while going, it is a puppet. It, it is a puppet, isn't it? Tell me it's a puppet. It's a short It's got to be. It is. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it undeniably it is. is. But it's, undeniably. But it's really deep down the uncanny valley. It's mm, yeah. just, ooh. Yeah, I, I kind of um, I feel like it actually works though. I mean, it's an it's an odd little um thing to take, and I hope it's not the only take. I hope people listeners <laughs> aren't sort of like, oh, what's that puppet baby <laughs> film they're talking about? In case you're not sure, it is a net. But I think um, there's yeah, there's a there's a lot to this film. I don't know where whether I loved it. I I kind of agree with you, Kelsey, with the repetition of some of the songs. I it almost made me feel a bit um. Uh, it like made me cringe a little bit, but then parts of it, like it's been described as the one of the most inventive films of, of this year, and I, I can't um, argue with that. It is incredibly inventive, and it, it's kind of it, they make it very engaging as well. They do, but the runtime. I'm sorry, two oh. hours and twenty minutes. That's ouch. <laughs> like, I know that's a lot of time. I, I did Google it. I got to the point where I was like, surely this is going to finish soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we should remind. Yeah, we should let listeners know that it is um, over the two-hour mark, which, yeah. for a uh, controversial pop opera, is a, is a long run time. That's my feeling on it. <laughs> it's a big ask. It's a big ask. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. I'd, I'm, I think I want. Would love to hear what. Um, what more people think of it because I think it's got quite mixed reviews. From it, what well, I'm it has. It polarised yeah. people at Cannes when mm. it was the opening night film this year. Mm. They've got a standing ovation but also lots of walkouts, <laughs> as, as any um, real Cannes success story should do, in fact, and, and that was widely read as being, hey, film festivals are back. Not only is Cannes back but it launched with a film that got exactly the reaction they, they dream of getting there, standing ovation and lots of walkouts. <laughs> that, it's the magic formula. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, Carrick's hadn't made a feature film in so many years and Holy Motors, there was a huge gap between that and his previous films too. Mm. And, and um, Sparks are having this bizarre renaissance now and maybe they'll get more film projects up. Um, for everyone who watched the Sparks documentary, the Edgar Wright's documentary earlier this year, mm. they might know how frustrated Sparks had been for countless years with various film projects with people like Jacques Tati or Tim Burton they were going to get in cahoots with. Mm. And prior to this... Um, Here's a hot tip for folks out there who want a bit more wacky sparks on film action. Uh, Guy Madden's film The Forbidden Room has a spark song buried deep within its stories nested within stories. A, a fun little film called The Final Derriere. <laughs> it's 
starring Udo Kier and uh, Geraldine Chaplin in that sequence. Oh. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, they, they made a musical called The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman and oh, released that right. as an album, yeah. but not a, a film. But finally, you know, they're in their 70s, but each of them now, I think, Ron and Russell. And finally, their moment has come. I, I mean, I, yeah. I find this inspirational that they've, they're in, yeah. they've played the long game, 50 years into a career, <laughs> and they got walkouts at Cannes and a standing ovation. So <laughs> I, I'm quite invested in that story, weirdly, yeah. too, which made me really want to enjoy the film more. And now I don't know what I feel about the film because it was just so odd. It really was. But actually, hearing you say that, I, I think something that stood out for me and that I did really love about it was that it's kind of, um you know, you've got these two creatives who are both at the peak of their careers and they're coupled together and what that kind of does to them as uh, creative beings as well. Like I think it puts a lot of pressure on them and how they're both seen in the media. There's these kind of little bits in the film where it will cut to um, kind of like a tabloid-esque headline of them mm. and it feels so fake but I think that's the whole point and it, it's kind of – very it's a very playful film. Film, you know, and I suppose I can't take away. I can't take away from that. I, the bit I loved the most was that um, that kind of investigation into the creative tension between the two, and the fact that they're drawn together for the fact that they are both creators and, and performers. Um, but then that maybe is what kind of tears them apart because of their egos and because of their, you know, what do they actually want to do? And they've created this baby together. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating – and it's got that layering as well of starting with the director introducing it as well. I don't know. There's a lot going on well, in Annette. Well, he also <laughs> makes it a tribute to his daughter. And um, I read in a sight and sound piece that, in fact, Carrick's wife died a few years back. And so in some quarters this has been interpreted as a – not quite a cry for help from Carax, but a sort of a self-loathing, um, wow, spe- yeah. spectacular pop opera collaboration with Sparks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, one of those, another one. Oh. As you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, look, if you are keen to check out Annette and make up your own mind, really, um, because I think we're all a little bit on the fence. There's well, kind I, of, I am, you, but I actually you, really want to see it again because I have yeah. a notion because I actually did watch the first few minutes again afterwards and it telegraphs some of what follows and I, I think that there are clues and riddles littered throughout it. I think it okay. will reward multiple viewings okay. for those who get through okay. the first one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think it might be a film that I could return to, just not right now, but I, I, I'm open to a re-watching too for soon. sure. Yeah, a bit too soon, a bit too soon. Um, and if you would like to check it out or maybe have a rewatch, Annette is currently available to rent at Acme. Um, They've got heaps of films on there, actually, so check out Acme, um, Acme's website. Um, you can also uh, rent it, Annette, via Google Play, YouTube or Apple TV as well. Uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Kelsey Pettifer, and myself, Flick Ford, Annette, which we just re- reviewed. Um, and it featured a very creepy puppet baby, which we talked a lot about. And a man who is no stranger to creepy puppets is surrealist Czech filmmaker Jan Zvankmeyer, who is the subject of the documentary Athenor, the Achelmical Furnace which is currently playing at the Czech and Slovak Film Festival. 
Now, I first came across uh, Svankmaya in my early 20s when a friend of mine showed me um, the 1989 short film uh, Meet Love, which um, it tells, you know, a really universal story um, (laughs) about two slabs of meat who fall in love. indeed the sound of uh, two loving steaks being sizzled at the end, um, which is a clip from uh, Meat Love, which is the 1989 short film that we were just talking about before. Um, But before we get into Athenor, the achemical furnace about Svankmaya's life and art, Cerise you know, this is this is a film that's going to be playing as part of the Czech and Slovak Film Festival. Um, you've been involved with the Czech and Slovak Film Festival for for many years. Um, how long has it been running now? Is it nine, nine years? It, it's into its into its ninth year, yeah. and I was a, a co-founder and its artistic director for its first six years. So oh, it's actually wow. been three years since I've really been in the trenches with the Casper crew. But um, and now they've run two editions in a or into their second now in a pandemic. Yeah, it's amazing, oh. isn't it? <laughs> I'm always impressed with people just being able to do anything in a pandemic, let alone run a festival. Um, it, it looks like an amazing program. I've been been going through all the different films there. And, you know, with Athenor, the the alchemical furnace, I feel like I'm really struggling over that note, alchemical furnace, um, it's it's a wonderful exploration into – am I saying his name right? Svankmeyer? Svankmeyer. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> It's it's just fascinating. Can you just tell um, listeners a bit about this documentary? Well, sure. It's it's covered. Um, it covers mm, two, three years or so, I think. Um, in well, as, as Schwenkmeier himself addressing the camera says at the beginning, in towards the the latter years of his life, he's now in his mid eighties. I think he's, he turned eighty seven last uh, September, and. Um, so he, he actually addresses the camera right at the very get-go to say, you know, there's not actually a lot of footage of me as a, a young man or of uh, his wife, Eva Schwankmeyerova, a great collaborator. They, they work together in, in, well, in life but and on film and on uh, art projects way beyond just uh, the screen too. Um, and... But there's not much to show of their life together. Yeah, it's about. I love that he opened with that. It's a beautiful way to, you know, for anyone who's having a film done about them. I love, I love the that. um, that sense of. Uh, sorry, just getting a bit distracted by the sound of my own voice <laughs> echoing back through to me. Um, I love the the fact that he just acknowledges it immediately. Of like, I wish that um, you'd been writing a film about me when I was young and handsome. And yeah. um, it's a lovely way to start it because I think it's it's just. Um, that knowingness about it as well, direct address. Well, he's still incredibly spry for someone yeah. who's in his mid eighties in the in, during that film, and um, and still very argumentative as well. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He knows where he stands on a number of of matters, um, and is still a card carrying surrealist. Yeah, and for a lot of people might imagine that was a historical movement that died out long, long ago. 
and might only you know, some people's understanding of what that term means might be quite superficial. Um, you know, it's just weird stuff, stream of consciousness, wackiness, wackiness for wackiness's sake, even or you know, it's, it's just Salvador Dali that stuff. But it's a whole philosophy to which uh, Schwankmeier is a, a lifelong devotee, and it's all about play and mm. um, and. Um, not subordinating the unconscious life to conscious reality and, and merging them wherever possible. You actually get a sense of that playfulness. And actually, I'm so glad we're talking about this film because I feel like there's a it's a, also an exploration of filmmaking in itself. And it talks about um, using close-up. He, he recommends that filmmakers should just always put things into close-up. Extreme close-up. Extreme close-up, yeah. yes, to, um, to, to make the audience think that, there's some importance in this mundane activity that has been captured. And I just love that advice because I personally love an extreme close-up when it is used. And, of course, in his films you see it used both not, not just on a visual sense but actually the amplified sound he uses, as you heard in that little clip, Meat Love, you know, the sound of the meat slapping. <laughs> is You know, it's wonderful. And it, it's got this real playful but also um, it's, it's very cheeky. It's very well, it be yeah. very funny, but it could also be disquieting mm. or, or it can make – I know it's, his uh, approach to filmmaking has made a lot of people I've introduced it to um, queasy. Yes. I think I was a bit in that camp, but I've, I've switched over. I've, I've relaxed into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, he's um, – he'd not long he, – well, he has not long finished uh, uh, his most recent feature film, and I think he was still making it, Insects, while this documentary was being made. And that mm. feature film actually had a lot of its own making of – embedded in its very form. Uh, this is, um, it's not just about Schwankmeier, this documentary. In a way, it really explores what it was to have had this extremely important relationship with Eva Schwankmeierova, who made a lot of sets and props for his films, and they made just a lot of art together. And mm. and so it's about that relationship, but also the relationship he has with his rather more pragmatic uh, producer, Yaramir Kalista, who's in a hilarious scene is urging Schrankmeyer to please, you know, please get the opinion of some people who aren't surrealists <laughs> to evaluate <laughs> your work. I loved that yeah. scene. I love it because... I it kind of speaks to him like the way that he just lives those ideals as well. It's not just in his art. It's actually, like you were saying, it's a philosophy. It's a it's a way of engaging in the world. It's a way of seeing the world. Um, Kelsey, you're an animator and I'm curious to to hear your take on, on um, Athenor. What what did you – were you familiar with Svankmeyer before? Or? I remember when I was in film school and, again, when I was studying animation, he, was, he always came up. He's fit, like so pivotal in both of those areas in mixed media animation. So I, I too have always found his work quite grotesque yeah. and yeah. hard to look at. <laughs> um, but I think in watching this film and the filmmakers treating it with such patience, they kind of just sat with him and kind of let him do what he did. And I felt like it kind of gave so much insight into his films and his techniques and the reasons that they're grotesque and mm -hmm. that they are beautiful in, in that. I yeah I really loved watching this film and mm. it it really just like the stop motion that they use is just so like ageless oh, it's beautiful be it really is beautiful isn't it I mm. I remember growing up with um lots of stop motion 
um, animation like um, Trapdoor. I don't know if anyone yeah. remembers that from the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I like there's certain, you know, it feels so much a part of my childhood and I love that he couples it, like you said, Kelsey, with these kind of grotesque elements mm. or, or kind of like um, – you know, quite provocative elements as well. Like, you know, he, he got, it's kind of fascinating. It's like kind of stop animation, um, stop motion animation for, for adults um, and, and philosophers and thinkers and, you know, like it yeah. goes to these dark places through it. So it's a Definitely. fascinating Yeah, cu- I mean, he toes the line constantly with childhood versus like and these sort of very provocative moments. It's really quite conflicting and strange. But, yeah. um, oh, I just, and yeah I just I loved the little quirky moments in this film as well uh, oh, so yeah, many <laughs> as you, oh so many it was but yeah a, a beautiful film there's, very very good uh, there's a moment where um the viewers are taken into his uh, I suppose you'd call it um collection his collection of objects and 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 items and things like that and I, I think that really spoke to me because I thought the way in which you know if you think about the filmmaking process it's about collecting all these different elements and, and lining them up to to tell a story and he does that in a very literal sense with these objects where he decides to um, in one scene he talks about how he covered them in porridge and then the, the rats came along and ate oh, them oh that's in, in the ways. making of a fetish yeah which you <laughs> yeah. need to feed yeah. regularly so that it can uh, perform its magic for you and do your bidding, at yeah. least emotionally. Mm. And the thought, the thought of um, creative output being connected up with fetish is fascinating because you think about Freud, Freud how he talked a lot about, you know, this, this energy that comes from that and we, we can divert it into sex or we can divert it into art. And I, I love that there's, there's elements of that that are weaved throughout Athenor and you get a real sense of his filmmaking approach. Well, and yeah, I mean, Conspirators of Pleasure his amazing 90s feature is entirely about that, what you were just talking about there, Flick, because it's really a, a masturbatory roundelay thing. You know, there's six characters all helping prop up one another's autoerotic, <laughs> bonkers stop motion <laughs> fantasy realities. <laughs> Hilarious film. But yeah, I mean, Schrankmar, he talks quite a bit about this in this documentary about his love of tactility and mm. about trying to make the viewer feel, mm. feel the the things that the objects that that he mm. is as he would say not actually bestowing life upon but bringing out the inner life of he's he's adamant that objects have their own memories they remember being handled yeah. they are they um so when he's an acting as an animator he's not giving life to lifeless objects per se. No, and that question of tactility especially in cinema is such a fascinating one because of course, cinema does have a tactility, but we don't often think about it as a tactile medium. And he definitely brings that out. And I, th- I think that stop animation really brings out those um, curves and surfaces and um, textures in, in a way that, um, you know, because of the fact that you're so aware that this object that, that is on screen has been moved in, in several different, you know, over, <laughs> over however many hundred um, little photos to be able to make this. So it's a fascinating process in itself and I love that this um, documentary kind of gives us a really deep dive into it. Um, mm. Kelsey, did it give you any tips on or ideas for, oh, for your own work? 
so inspired. <laughs> but you can also just see the inspiration that other people have taken from it. So like Admin's yep. obvious, um, also Leica has a very similar sort of tactile feel to it as well. I mean, it's, yeah, Terry Gilliam, of yeah. course. It's just, yeah. it's just everyone. Like um, it's hard not to be inspired by this um, film and his techniques and processes. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. I, I love, though, that with documentaries like this that, um, you know, some people may not be familiar with um, Zwankmeyer but would be, you know, no kind of get a sense when you say Terry Gilliam. They probably have an idea of what that means and what kind mm. of space um, he occupies. But it's kind of lovely tracing that thread back of influence and I, I always find it a really meaningful exploration to, to kind of go back to see, you know, Zwankmeyer it comes up all the time for people who, uh, you know, when they talk about their their inspiration for that work, their work, and there's so much to explore because, um, you know, in the t- in thinking about the politics of of when he would have been. Um, you know, growing up and what he would have gone through. Like, it's, it's just he's just a fascinating character. He is, and um, and clearly quite ageless in his appeal there's a scene in the film where he's just holding court in a, a bookshop um it's just a, a lot of notably quite young people just hanging on every word as he's cracking gags as he explains you know, surrealist philosophy i mean yeah. there, there is something there that um you know there, there are very few people i think can be said to, to be genuinely surrealist in 2021 and yet actually communicate that and it be received Mm. Because, and globally as well, yeah. around the world. Mm. I, it's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've I loved this doco. I, I found it an absolute um, absolute joy, actually. I loved the playfulness and I loved all the, the dark humour that is weaved through it as well um, and all the little fights about um, <laughs> making, making things palatable. Um, <laughs> so if you would like to see Athenor, the achemical... Alchemical Furnace, about the surrealist Czech filmmaker Jan Zvankmajer. It is um, playing now as part of the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia. Um, And so you can check out the full program at casffa.com.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Kelsey Pettifer and myself, Flick Ford. We spoke with Natalie May, who is the screen manager of the Environmental Film Festival. Um, the festival is starting this Thursday and you can check out the full program on effa.org.au. Earlier, we also reviewed Leos Carrick's pop opera, Annette, which is currently available to rent through Acme, or you can do it through Google Play, YouTube, or, or Apple TV. And just now, we finished up with Athenor, the alchemical furnace, about the surrealist Czech filmmaker Jan Zvankmajer. And that's streaming as part of the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia. The festival is on now, and you can view the full program at CASFFA. Um, If you're interested in any of those topics, you can listen back to our show um, online on Triple R's website, rrr.org.au, or you can subscribe to our podcast. And speaking of our podcast, the wonderful Morty Oswan, who edits our podcast every week, has a documentary short on SBS On Demand, co-produced by Morty and directed by Renda Haj, Hayat, tells the story of a single mother of four who's navigating disconnect and personal difficulties to maintain a sense of cultural identity and belonging. 
Hayat won Best Melbourne Documentary at last year's Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. I highly recommend you check it out. It's uh, Just head to sbs.com.au forward slash on demand. And we're so proud of you, Morty. On you, Morty. Yeah, she's a good egg. Um, big thank you to Natalie May for speaking with us, uh, to Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance, and, and my special guest, Cerise Howard. It's lovely to have you back. And Kelsey Pettifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was lovely. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 